Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you enjoy binge-watching the best TV shows and love hearing from the actors and showrunners who make them happen, then subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our Hollywood reporters take you behind the scenes of the year's most anticipated projects, the industry's biggest moves, and the hardest-fought awards races. From The Crown to The Real Housewives, we've got the inside scoop. As a special thank you to our still-watching audience, we're offering 15% off a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair. Visit VanityFair.com today and use promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a yearly digital subscription to everything you want. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Are you driving your car or doing laundry right now? Podcasts go best when they're bundled with another activity. Like Progressive Home and Auto Policies, they're best when they're bundled too. Having these two policies together makes insurance easier and could help you save. Customers who save by switching their home and car insurance to Progressive save nearly $800 on average. Quote a home and car bundle today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. It's a world more peaceful since the revolution. It is a shame that your people suffered. But bounty hunting is a complicated profession. Hello and welcome back to Still Watching the Mandalorian. I'm Vanity Fair senior writer Joanna Robinson. And I'm Vanity Fair special correspondent Anthony Bresnikan. We are here in the wee small <laughs> hours of Friday morning after Thanksgiving. I sound uh, tremendous. I think you'll all agree. Uh, you know, I've, I'm getting over some laryngitis. But we are here to talk about the latest episode of The Mandalorian, episode four, Sanctuary. Or chapter uh, we- four as it's trending oh. this morning. I'm Chapter like, four. <laughs> there has to be a word for when you tweet something and then like a slightly different phrase starts uh, to trend and you're yes. like, oh, I should have called it chapter four instead of episode four. Bummer. Well, it's funny because um, I feel like misspelled hashtags are frequently like the trending hashtag. So yeah, can't, that- can't fight city hall, man. You can't fight city hall. Um, yeah. So we're, we're here to talk about chapter four sanctuary um we are not spoiling anything beyond chapter four because frankly we don't know much of what happens beyond chapter four so Mm-mm. we are here to just talk about that episode we'll be running through the episode we've got some emails from you guys to read uh you could always email us still watching pod at gmail.com we love reading your emails and at the end of this episode we have a very special guest uh we have an interview with the great gina carano which was just like a thrill of my life to talk with her um anthony can you describe what it's like being in gina Carano's presence. Yeah, because she's, uh, it's interesting because she's, I think she's very sweet. Like, so sweet. Like, 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 like soft spoken. She has a very soft voice. And, um, it's like being in the presence of, um, a really nice kindergarten teacher. <laughs> like, you're, you're an elementary school teacher you really liked, but who also could, like, hurl you out a window. Cause she's so strong. Like she's physically, her arms are big and you can see like her legs are like really muscular and, uh, and like she's physically it's, imposing. Yeah. It's a kind of power. She has that kind of just innate power because of like how amazingly, incredibly like strong and powerful she is that she can, she can just be as like soft as can be. And it seems like it's just her natural state to be that way because she doesn't have to be tough because she just, you just know how tough she is just by looking at her. So it's just, it's a, she's an incredible person. I just love yeah. talking to her. So like she'll hear. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And like you hear like the way she talks about baby Yoda is like so sweet. 
And it's so like, sweet. Yeah. Like, like I said, she's like the kind of person you would, uh, you would love to teach you the ABCs or help you move a refrigerator. <laughs> she can do it all. She can do it all. Um, <laughs> all right. So, uh, this episode, uh, before we get into it, I did want to like go through a couple emails we got. We just got a few, uh, to go through. The first one, uh, it's actually a message someone sent me, not an email, and I forget where because people like will Instagram DM me or Twitter DM. So people want to talk about this show on any platform they can find. They want to talk about Baby Yoda. But you and I had talked about this idea of the Mandalorian signet that he was looking mm. for some sort of emblem, some sort of symbol. And you, you know, you made the, the very sharp observation that it would probably be something connected to Baby Yoda, this little Yoda thing. Um, and you and I had had some trouble though thinking of like a Yoda head looking kind of cool or badass in any way. But I can't remember if you raised it as well to me, but someone uh, messaged me about the idea of using th- the tridactyl hand, the three fingered hand as sort of the signet because there have been a lot of shots that just focused on baby Yoda's little three fingered hand. Um, what do you think of that idea, Anthony? I think that's uh, a good possibility. I, I think our problem with a Yoda being as a as a signet is that it, it starts to look a little like a like your 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 you've got a house elf on your right. uh, <laughs> yeah Dobby your armor. yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. yeah a little yeah. like oh oh your creature is a is a little is a little pixie mm-hmm. <laughs> you know <laughs> like a little but not the pixies can't be strong you know and and tough but it just doesn't seem like it's the Mandalorian style but but there was that thing. That I saw, uh, and I don't know the uh, origin of it necessarily, but there was a picture from Galaxy's Edge that shows like Mando's helmet and his, uh, his, uh, uh, oh, it's early, it's early the day after Thanksgiving. Forgive me for forgetting the name of his, uh, of his forked rifle. Was it, is it a pulse rifle? It's a pulse rifle, yeah. I didn't even, oh, there you go. I should have just nailed it. but like, uh, like that, that's hanging up in Doc Ondar's den of antiquities. But there's also now this little banner that looks like a stylized Yoda. So maybe that's it. I don't know. Like, uh, yeah, the, uh, yeah, that image you sent me. It's possible. It's possible. I guess we'll have to tune in to find out. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we should say that like they're, they're sort of slowly rolling all this, uh, baby Yoda stuff out. Anthony has a great piece about baby Yoda, um, which is what we're calling it, even though it's, we know it's not Yoda probably, but you know, the showrunners are calling it baby Yoda, saying it's okay to call it baby Yoda. So, you know, and it's like the number one trending topic in the world. So we're going to call it baby Yoda, but Anthony's got a great piece about it over on VF.com. You can read. Um, about sort of the rollout of the merchandise and, and, uh, a lot of other stuff about it because, um, they wanted to keep the secret of the baby Yoda mm-hmm. in the show. And one of the main sources of leaks for spoilers, and I know this is someone who reads a lot of spoilers, is merchandise often. And so that they did not do any baby Yoda uh, merchandise in advance because they didn't want it, you know, the info to leak out via those sources. Sometimes people have asked me, okay, like, how does it work when you, get first looks or, you know, new images or uh, video or some sort of look at, at a character or, or a reveal from a Star Wars property, uh, you know, a movie or in this case, TV show. And, um, and I, and I explain like, well, sometimes it's a negotiation. Like sometimes you're, you're, you're asking for things and you're trying to, 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 to bargain with, with the studio and the, and, the, and Lucasfilm. And, and I, and, and one thing that I often say, and it's, you know, I'm not, I feel like I'm not giving away a, a secret here is uh look this is going to come out so let's do a nice presentation where we can explain what the creature is what the alien is or what's going on here otherwise people are going to find out about the crystal foxes uh from a from like a cereal box right (laughs) or like yeah or they're gonna see you know legos are cool i don't know that a lego representation is the best way to represent um you know the revelation of kanji club (laughs) <laughs> you know, so, uh, so I think, uh, the, uh, that, that, uh, yeah, not making toys out of Baby Yoda is one reason we were surprised to see Baby Yoda at the end of that first episode. I love a Kanja Club reference early in the day after Thanksgiving. There's nothing I love more, Anthony. Well, Thank you for that. When you have a case of the efforts, it's sort of ten- tell it to Kanja Club. <laughs> tell that to Kanja Club. It's my favorite Force Awakens, uh, quotes, actually. I say it a lot. Okay. So, um, 
<laughs> so we've got that. And then someone was asking, you know, one big question that's hanging over this whole thing is that if there is this baby Yoda, this, this small Yoda like being that, um, the Mandalorian is protecting and this show takes place between the end of, uh, Return of the Jedi, the beginning of Force Awakens. Do we think this being is still alive and around in the current trilogy? Is it going to show up in Rise of Skywalker? Should we be worried about it if we haven't seen it in the current trilogy? Like, do you have any, any thoughts on, on, I don't know, <laughs> the status of Baby Yoda during Force Awakens or The Last Jedi or Rise of Skywalker? Well, this is a great question, Joanna. And I think it's one that we've actually experienced before. So, you, if for people who are fans of the Clone Wars, for instance, know, well, they love this character, Ahsoka Tano, uh, and she's not in the original trilogy, so it's like this sense of, well, she must, she must die or something must happen to her because we don't see her in these previous Star Wars stories and she wouldn't, surely she would be a part of it if she was this, this key to Anakin and Obi-Wan Kenobi, like nobody ever mentions her. Uh, of course, like the real world answer was they don't mention her because she didn't exist when those movies were made. Right. <laughs> Nobody could have right. foreshadowed that. Uh, and, and, um, uh, and for years people kind of wondered like, well, what would, what would be her? She must die, right? So she must die, take, take her out of the equation. And we found out like, well, she didn't die. We don't believe she did. She's still alive at the, uh, I mean, spoiler alert, uh, a couple of years later, she's, she, she became a part of Rebels. Uh, which is right up close to, uh, when the original trilogy began in, in the Star Wars timeline. So, uh, the way Star Wars has dealt with this question is, uh, just because you didn't see something in a particular story that you love doesn't mean that it's not still out there in the universe, uh, making mischief, unscrewing, uh, knobs from <laughs> co- cockpit control panels. And, uh, you know, living his best life, slurping bone soup and, uh, <laughs> eating frogs. Slurping bone soup. So I think yeah. it's possible that baby Yoda makes it beyond this season of Mandalorian and is sent to, uh, to actually live on a farm somewhere, which is the thing they always tell you when you're pet. In upstate away. New York. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, it, it's funny because, um, this is this is a problem that uh, crops up for the Marvel universe, right? Because you've got so many strong superheroes in the Marvel universe, and you're watching Spider-Man: Homecoming, and you're like, "Where's Captain why, Marvel, man? Yeah, why isn't Peter Parker calling? You know, Thor or whatever. Um, you know, and so you just gotta, uh, you know, roll with it. Sometimes not everything is gonna be in everything that you love. So, um, there we go. Uh, the last thing that I wanted to bring up before we get into this specific episode is, um. I, a friend of mine, actually, uh, Dave Gonzalez, who actually, uh, edits this podcast for us, uh, has been playing Jedi Fallen Order. And he let me know that in Jedi Fallen Order, they, uh, which is a video game that's out from Lucasfilm right now, uh, they renamed, uh, Order 66, which is the event at the end of the prequel trilogy where all the Jedi are killed at the behest of Palpatine. They renamed it The Purge. And mm. so it's just called the purge in that. Oh. And so he's wondering if that purge, um, is gotta be the same as this is that they just rebranded order 66 as the purge and, and they're not even calling it the Jedi purge. They're just calling it the purge. And maybe that's, you know, the purge that we're talking about in this show. Um, that would make sense to me from a, that it seems more and more that that's what Lucasfilm, their story group there wants to do is sort of centralize all their stories and make them, all sort of part of, you know, that's their job is to make it all part of one story. So if I, I can't think that it's a coincidence that something's been renamed the purge in a current video game. Um, and then we're talking about the purge in this show as well. You know, I think it's, yeah, it must be the same thing. And the timeline matches, they didn't have two purges. It's going to, right. it's got to be it. <laughs> but also that makes sense, you know, uh, not to bring up like a inappropriately heavy reference, but. You know, Kristallnock is the name right. of uh, of the terror that uh, uh, that unfolded. But I'm sure there was an order, you know, or that there was some right. file right. reference or some technical term for it. And uh, I think that kind of happens a lot. Is that uh, uh, you know, I, I think you could still say that 
Palpatine gave out Order 66, and uh, and yet that incident is known uh, colloquially around the universe as uh, the purge. Right? Yeah, I just I I can't imagine anyone being like, oh, you know, Order 66. Like that doesn't sound oh, like yeah. something people would say. Everybody but, knows yeah, that. Exactly. <laughs> um, I, I lied. There's one more thing I want to talk to you. It's going to lead directly into this episode, but it's related to the larger Star Wars world, which is this. There is a feat, a new featurette, um, that came out. Yeah. Um, and at the very end, blink and you'll miss, um, a little shot, a featurette about Rise of Skywalker. At the very end, blink and you'll miss this shot. And I mean, skip ahead a little bit in this podcast if you don't want to hear any discussion of Rise of Skywalker, I suppose, but, um, you see a shot of Warwick Davis, who played mm-hmm. Wicket, the Ewok in the original um, trilogy, uh, back in the Ewok habit, back in the uniform with the like little Ewok head that he's sort of holding on to, um, which confirms some rumors that I've been hearing that Ewoks were going to be in The Rise of Skywalker. We get a big mention of Endor. We got some ATSTs in this episode. Um what do you think of of that, Anthony, of of Ewoks and the Rise of, of Skywalker? And what do you think of the Mandalorian as like um, a primer for people to get them ready for Rise of Skywalker? You know what I mean? Well, we can go into that more. I do know what you mean, and I had this question too, and I wanted to maybe I could take this opportunity to reveal that uh, I have a series of stories coming up this week with J.J. Abrams talking about rise of skywalker and uh one of the questions i had this isn't actually going to be the focus of a story because the question had a negative answer but i said is there any crossover going on with mandalorian and rise of skywalker you know mandalorian ends just as uh, rise of skywalker is coming out did you guys work together and jj said no no no. well i know john favreau and we've talked a little bit about like just working on star wars but we don't actually have any crossover so uh i think it's, I don't think that necessarily the stories are going to connect in any significant way. Um, meaning like tune in to uh, Mandalorian for the exciting conclusion of Rise of Skywalker. I don't think that's right. going to happen. Right. Um, but I think, uh, you know, I, I do think there are little bits being dropped in here that are, I, like, I, I don't know that that's like a primer necessarily for Rise of Skywalker. I think it's, I think it's just one more example of them just trying to thread back to the original trilogy and have a connection there. And look, the Battle of Endor was a major, would have been a major incident for somebody like Cara Dune, uh, Gina Carano's character, her shock trooper character on this. And she says, like, that's what I liked. I liked being kind of on the front lines. I didn't like guarding delegates and, uh, right. looking after, you know, uh, suppressing riots and things like that. That wasn't what I signed up for. So, uh, I think, uh, I loved hearing that, the little Endor reference, and I was really excited to see Warwick Davis turn up in, as Wicket. Uh, you know, he was a little boy when he was in, uh, he's so little. If you've never, Jedi. if you've never looked at those behind the scenes photos, just do yourself a solid. It's so sweet. Him and Carrie Fisher, yeah. um, on the set of, of Return of the Jedi. So, but, and when I say little boy, look, he's a, he's a, he's a, he's a, uh, he's a little person, but he, um, he was, he was only like about a 11. Teenager. Yeah. yeah. No, oh, I 11. Think he was, oh, wow. I think he was younger. I think, I wow. feel like he's my age. And so, you know, the fact that he, and, and you know, have you ever seen his letter to George Lucas asking for, uh, after he shot it, he said, I'm the little boy who played, uh, Wicked. Could I get some Wicked toys? <laughs> and, oh, no. Uh, <laughs> so sweet. Like, adorable. And so I love the idea that he gets to come back. Well, he's been a big part of the Star Wars family for years. He's played various characters and, uh, uh, creatures and humans and, and, uh, turned up to voice characters and, and rebels and he moderates panels at Star Wars Celebration. So to see him back as his original character, just wonderful. Also, I would like to see Endor again. I, I liked Endor. I liked the Ewoks and I, I liked their little dance. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. To the original, <laughs> to the original Yubnub, not the specialized edition. Of I would um, like to see him dance to Yubnub. I don't know. <laughs> I would like, I would love the return of Yubnub. Um, yeah, I've, I've talked about this elsewhere before, but I grew up in the, in Northern California in the Bay Area where George Lucas lives and, um, Endor was filmed up in sort of the Northern California Redwoods, which, and so Endor always, when people ask me where I grew up, sometimes I'm like, Oh, it, it looks like Endor. And it does like that's, I grew up in the Redwoods. And so, um, it always looks like home to me. So I was excited to see, uh, the potential return of, of at least Ewoks, if not Endor in the new movie. And this forest planet, 
that we get here, uh, Sorgan, I believe it's called, uh, in this episode. Um, you mentioned Gina's shock trooper character. We had asked her when we interviewed her, um, uh, you know, a, a couple weeks ago, we had asked her, you know, you hear shock trooper and you think, um, Imperial forces. What is a rebel shock trooper? Do you feel like we've gotten an answer? She wasn't able to answer that for us then, really. Do you feel like, the, I feel like this episode hasn't really answered that, and I don't know if we'll get it in the future, but it just, it's an unusual designation for a rebel, um, soldier. Isn't that right? Yes. And we hear from her kind of a controversial take on it. You know, suppressing riots is not the work of good guys or is, I guess maybe, maybe it is if it's a riot, but like, um, she doesn't seem too enamored with it. And what, what was, did, did you get a good sense? Like, is she a wall? I mean, is she, what is it that makes her a fugitive? I'm, I'm trying to remember what. That's, that's what I think. I think she's defected. Yeah. I think she, she calls it early retirement, but yeah, I think she's gone AWOL she's, and, um, she's worried the Mandalorian is there to bring her in, uh, in front of, I don't know, the jag of <laughs> the rebel forces or something like that. Like she but, gave yeah. kind of a general answer for why she didn't want to be a shock trooper anymore. I wasn't sure if, if, if there was maybe something specific that happened that made her. It might be. She implied that we might learn more about that in the future. And we should say, I mean, I don't think it's a secret. Uh, Gina Carano is like filming season two. So this is not the last we're going to see of Gina Carano's mm-hmm. character. So we know that Cara Dune, even though, um, you know, the Mandalorian's leaving her for now, this is not the last we're going to see of her. How funny is it too? Like, uh, when he, before he, they decide to help the villagers, he's like, okay, well, we're going to leave. Like, she's like, this planet's taken, like, that you can't be on the, the same whole planet, planet as yeah. another person. Like, yeah. Yeah, exactly. okay. <laughs> um, it's, it's what, it's just further that, that sense of smallness for, you know, cause like with Tatooine, there's like most Isley and then like, kind of the stuff around most Eisley and then like not much else. This idea that we get like eh, one ecosystem for a planet, one planet isn't, isn't big enough for two refuge, uh, like fugitives sort of thing. So I don't know. It's interesting. Um, the, but the big question, the bigger question around, uh, Cara Dune, this archetype of a character is what does a soldier do during peacetime? What mm-hmm. does someone who's born to fight, do with themselves when there's no more war to fight. She doesn't want to guard delegates and, and that sort of stuff. And that's, I think you've talked about how a lot of the Westerns take place immediately post-war. And that's a, that's a, that's a question a lot of Westerns are concerned with. What does a soldier do during peacetime? Right? Very much so. I think that's a very good question and, and an enduring one in yeah. our world and elsewhere. Um, so I wanted to ask you about, so this episode, which involves the Mandalorian meeting Cara Dune, meeting these villagers, um, protecting them from, you know, the, the, the Klaatuinians, I believe they're called. Mm-hmm. We've met the Nictos and the Klaatuinians mm-hmm. in the series. Um, next we'll get and, the Baratas. <laughs> yes. Can't wait for the Baratas next week. Um, so this is, uh, this is a classic. Story. This is the story of the Seven Samurais. This is the story of Magnificent Seven, A Bug's Life, Three Amigos, whatever you want to call it. The villagers who come to the gunslinger or the gunslingers or the samurais and say, will you please protect us? Um, from this, you know, warlord or whatever. And, um, and, and you get a montage of training villagers and all that sort of stuff. Um, it's, sorry, why are you laughing? I'm laughing because I'm just thinking, yeah, it's, it's a classic story. It's, you're very great. Come to Santa Poco, stop. The infamous El Guapo. Infamous El Guapo. <laughs> I knew of the four references you would be most excited to talk about. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> uh, Three Amigos is such a good movie. Um, anyway, so, um, so that, that's the, that's the story that we're getting here. How do you think the Mandalorian benefits from, like, uh, using this very, very famous samurai slash western story to tell this specific episode's story? It's also interestingly like a remake in a way of an episode of the Clone Wars, season two, episode 17. Uh, called Bounty Hunters. Anakin and Obi-Wan are training a group of farmers in, uh, on the planet Felucia, which is, uh, if you, if 
or remember the uh, the rice uh, or the Revenge of the Sith, where there's a like a like a fungus world and uh, right. <laughs> giant, you know, very colorful flora uh, are blooming all over this world. Well, they, they go and they they do pretty much the same thing. They help protect this group of farmers who keep having their 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 uh, harvest raided by uh, by bad guys. And uh, even that sequence where they take their sticks and learn to do a little Tai Chi with it and uh, slash at the air and do it in unison. And uh, that very sequence is in this episode of the Mandalorian and uh, goes right back to that, uh, to that episode. It's just, just the plot wise. It, it's very similar, but as you say, it's also very similar just to a, a tradition in, in storytelling, which is the strong individual uh, becomes a champion for uh uh, a vulnerable community. You know, it's the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. It's the, uh, uh, it's the, uh, idea that, 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 that the weak can rise up if they are led. And, uh, I think it's, it, it is, as you say, very, just very classic storytelling. The reference I made in my recap was also not, not super highbrow, but, uh, it reminded me of, uh, of the A team. You know, you have these, you know, fugitives, they're on the run, they, uh, they're, uh, against authority, but they're for goodness and <laughs> decency and the yeah. underdog. And, uh, you know, just like where they're building the fortifications and then teaching the people how to shoot and how to, how to, uh, how to fight and, uh, making their plan. Like I just kept thinking like we'd get that. A team theme song, and you know, as they prepare to battle this ATST, you know, the local, the local boss is going to come in with his ATST and uh, and take it, extort you for your harvest, your your shrimp harvest, your uh, blue, your blue krill, yeah, yeah, that's what they called them. I was so disappointed they didn't call them yob shrimp, which is what you can eat. Galaxy's Edge at Disneyland. Oh, okay. I was like, oh, first thing, I'm like, oh, those must be Yob Shrimp, a little theme park crossover. But no, they called them Blue Krill. All right. <laughs> um, yeah, it, it goes, I, I really like that point about how, um, okay, so Cara Dune may not want to work for the Rebel Alliance protecting, deli- like, you know, diplomats, but there is no doubt about her where, which, which direction her moral compass points, right? If she's, willing to protect this village, mm-hmm. um, perhaps slightly grudgingly, but oh, willing to get there eventually. Um, it, the thing that I wrote down in my notes, uh, and I keep writing down in my notes for the Mandalorian is the save the cat principle, right? This screenwriting principle, uh, I think popularized by Blake Snyder, but this idea that if you want your audience to empathize with your hero, have them do something heroic, like saving a cat at the beginning of your, mm-hmm. of your screenplay so that you're on their team. And this is, this is what the Mandalorian has been doing, which is saving the cat that is baby Yoda. And yes, we definitely feel like it's a cat after the opening sequence of this episode, right? Exactly. Um, willfully, uh, hitting switches. It's not supposed to hit. Um, and then saving, saving an entire village of cats. So he's just like saving cats across the galaxy, basically, mm-hmm. and, and which is what the Mandalorian is doing. But so. there's also another aspect of this storytelling, which, uh, uh, is the hero isn't, is helping, but isn't fully altruistic either. You know, you think of the three amigos. They came because they thought they were going to get paid. And, mm-hmm. uh, I forget. Is that how it played out for the samurai and the magnificent? Yeah, is, they're is, all being they're all being it's paid. Like you're doing yeah. it for the work, and then at some point, in order for there to be an arc for the character, the character has the hero, the champion has to realize, uh, doing the right thing is its own reward, and throw the bag of gold back to the people of Santa Polka. I think what's <laughs> usually true. <laughs> I think what's usually true is that the. Um, the villagers don't wind up having that much money to pay in the end or something like that. Anyway, it's, um, it's interesting. This, you know, this is only a 35 minute episode, so we don't get the full arc. The other thing is that these are wandering. This is a big theme of this episode. These are wandering heroes, the Ronin, the Mm -hmm. gunslingers. They are men without homes or women without homes. And the idea of like protecting a home, protecting a village, but you don't get to be part of that home, that village. That's mm. not your path. And, you know, we get that moment uh, most acutely in, in this episode when um, the character played by Julia Jones goes to sort of, you know, try to remove the Mandalorian's helmet. And just then, 
you know, even, even though he stops her hands just then at the same time, also, you know, a bounty hunter in the, in the tree line was trying to take a shot at baby Yoda. And, and so like, uh, (laughs) it's interrupted by that as well. You know, who knows? She might've been able to get that helmet off of him if they hadn't been interrupted. Um, but this idea of like, that's, that's his real life. His real life is he's on the run. Bounty hunters are never going to let, there is no peace for someone like, um, a Mandalorian, this, this Mandalorian or Logan, um, in the movie Logan or a gunslinger or whatever it is, you know? Well, yeah, I think, I don't think the helmet was coming off. I think he had pretty well decided that he was going to keep with his traditions, but he was distracted by her at a time when somebody's got baby Yoda in the crosshairs. Now, uh, I didn't think that baby Yoda was going to get wasted. Um, and I do have a little bit of a problem with that twist because they just used the same technique in episode one when the Mandalorian stops IG-11, the killer bounty hunter droid, from executing Baby Yoda. You know, you see the bad guy raise the gun, you see poor Baby Yoda uh, being targeted, and then you hear a blast. Oh, you're right, yeah. And then the reverse reversal of this is the blast was somebody else shooting the bad guy. And I just thought that was, I didn't, I think that could have been resolved in a uh, perhaps slightly more creative way because it had just been used, you know, in chapter one. I think that's fair. That's a fair, that's a fair critique. Yeah. Uh, I will also say that his, his uh, flamethrower keeps like malfunctioning, letting him down. So I I would like to see that flamethrower really, really uh, go, go for it. It's yeah. Uh, You've got to wonder like, uh, is that maybe more trouble than it's worth? (laughs) (laughs) Like how often do you have to refuel that thing? I have a lot of questions. Yeah. but Um, You know, I think this story gets at something too. That's, I I don't know if we're supposed to get very uh, political with these kinds of things, but the notion that you brought up of he's helping the village, but he's not part of the village brings up something that I think is, I think it's political. I think it's kind of biblical. It's that question of like, am I my brother's keeper? And, uh, what do I owe society or other people who I don't have a connection with? And I think this is the kind of thing, these fables and these stories exist because it's a way of making people realize that sometimes you're the Mandalorian and sometimes you're the Sorgan shrimp farmer. You know, is that we stand up for each other and look out for each other um, because it's the right thing to do. But also it's the beneficial thing because you might be the person who needs to be stood up for in the future. So if this is just a general value and virtue that human beings have, uh, the world works better. You know, it's whether it's in a school or in a workplace or in an actual like, you know, dispute or fight or war. Uh, looking out for people who are weaker than you is, uh, is a virtue. And it's something that benefits, benefits the world, benefits the town, benefits people in general. And I think sometimes as humans, we're very good at, at looking out, not just for ourselves, like su- super selfishly, but for our, for our tribe, let's say. Yeah. Uh, which I would say the Mandalorians kind of represent. They're, they look after each other. They care a lot about each other and they, uh, and they don't care about much else. And that's sort of how they have to survive. Um, but then we see them rise up and protect the Mandalorian as he escapes with Baby Yoda. And they kind of do something that's not necessarily just for their own self-interest. So these stories, or, you know, even Han Solo, same sort of deal, right? Like, he's got to look out for number one. And uh, uh, there's a really wonderful book written by uh, Karen Valby, who's a Vanity Fair writer. She just did the cover story on... John Legend and Chrissy Teigen, she wrote this book called Welcome to Utopia. And she went to a town in, I believe it was West Texas, a remote town that didn't really have much connection to the rest of the world in terms of pop culture. Like she went there to write about pop culture and she ended up writing about the people. Like mm-hmm. they, they, their one form of entertainment was like a rack of the VHS at the <laughs> drugstore that had like, <laughs> uh. you know, but they didn't have like a movie theater. The furthest nearest movie theater was miles and miles and miles away. And, uh, and she wrote about how they, the, the people of this community really cared about each other and really looked after each other. But then they didn't care, like, politically about anybody else. Like, outside of their community, the rest of the world were grifters and untrustworthy. And, and why should we pay taxes for somebody else to have health care, you know? And why should we do this for somebody else? 
And it's a fascinating look at human nature. Uh, and I think that this story, I'm kind of rambling here and going on and on about it, but is, is an interesting look at like that idea of, uh, if you don't stand for yourself, what, who, who will stand for you? But if you stand only for yourself, then who are you? Uh, and that's, you know, that's a, that's a Jewish teaching. It's, uh, the, the most valuable thing I learned in Catholic school was, <laughs> was that from, uh, from, uh, Jewish scripture. And, uh, uh, I think it's a, a good way to think about your life. It's a good way to tell stories too, because it, it, it it's important to stand up for yourself, but you also got to look after, uh, you got to look after the Sorg and Shrimp people. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, I Sorry, a little monologue there. <laughs> no, I, lo- I, I love a present again monologue. No, but I, I loved all of that. And um, one thing that I think this episode is really effective in, and this is related to what you're saying, is is addressing this idea of, of the Mandalorian's mask. We learn a little bit more of the lore around the mask, which is, you know, you don't take it off around other people. And and it answers a lot of questions that people had where it's like, how do you eat? How do you sleep? Blah, blah. And it's like, it's not that you never take it off. You don't take it off around other people. You eat alone. You sleep alone. And presumably there are exceptions if you are like, if your family's Mandalorian, but you don't take it off in front of um, non-Mandalorians, I guess. And what this means is we talked, I talked about this a little bit after episode two, when, um, the Mandalorian asked Kuil to sort of like come with him. This idea of the Mandalorian sort of like oppressive loneliness, his solitude and the way in which this, um, this episode really underlines this, like, you know, th- that he's being welcomed into this community, but he has, he can't participate in a lot of the communal activities. He can't eat with them. That's a communal activity. He has to do it alone, uh, where no one can see him. And just this, you know, separate apartness that is part of his culture. Um, this culture that he's grateful for because they adopted him. But, um, you know, it's a sort of, it's a damaging, seems to me to be a damaging way to live. What did you make about, uh, of this, um, discussion of, you know, <laughs> the, the way in which the Mandalorians have to behave around other people? Uh, I thought it was important to get that out of the way because I think it's the kind of thing that's going to start to bother viewers after a while if they don't get an explanation. Like, well, how does he eat? He never takes the mask off, like, right. And you get a little explanation. I mean, again, it's sort of like a little bit of a religious thing, right? There are all sorts of cultures around the world that you don't go out in public without, you, you know, uh, uh, certain head, headwear or a uh, certain outfit. You just don't. And, uh, and yet you obviously it's not part of your body. So you have to take it off sometimes and bathe or to eat or, you know, whatever, sleep or what have you. Uh, so, uh, I think drawing the correlation like that just helps people kind of okay roll with it okay he never takes the mask off it's sort of like a there's like an emotional cultural reason for it and uh and yet he does take it off we see him take his helmet off but we don't see him we see the helmet on the ledge and he uh, eats some of his snack so i think it's just a, a little i think it's like a practical solution to some questions that people may have been harboring it's it's absolutely practical and I appreciated the practicality of it, but I just liked that it also felt thematic. You know what I mean? At the same oh, yeah. time. And that's, and that's the best kind of exposition, right? Um, and the last thing that it does is it establishes stakes. Like we know the stakes. Like he won't even, if he won't even take his helmet off for Julia Jones, the lovely Julia Jones, then when he does take his helmet off, which we presume he will at some point in the show, we know it will be a very big deal, right? Yeah. So like, I mean, a, a, a theory that I have that a lot of people have is that he will take his helmet off before the end of the season. And the reason he will do so will be in some way in service of, of the baby. Right. And it, but we, it, we know, we will know what that gesture means because we will have seen these other instances where he decided not to, you know? So, mm-hmm. um, so there's all of that. And then the, the last thing I want to say about this, these sorghum shrimp farmers is something that um I appreciate it is the uh this is a a non white village, right? Uh Julia Jones is a mm-hmm. Native American actress. Uh Eugene Cordero plays one of the villagers. He's a Filipino comedian. Um there it, it's sort of like it's an amalgamation of different cultures, but it is like an a decidedly non white culture, which is a similar um the Mandalorian himself, you know, as played by Peter Pascal, a, a non-white man, um, comes from some sort of non-white culture. But I liked that they, t- they went out of their way to distinguish between the two, I guess, because 
the Sorgan shrimp farmers wear blue. And we know he's not from that village because the Mandalorians, uh, original people were predominantly red. That's something we know. Um, and I just think it's, I don't know. It's, it's interesting. I like the effortless, I think, diversity of this universe. And it's as it should be because this is a whole wide, you know, it's a galaxy far, far away and, and people should not all look the same in a galaxy far, far away. So I like that about it. Yeah, I do too. Um, all right. Is there anything else specifically we want to talk about in this, uh, in this episode before we move on? Hmm. I'll, I'll just say for people who don't know, um, the difference is I know it between an at, at an ATAT and an ATST is an ATST is like a scout, uh, thing. That's what the S stands for, I think. Right. And then ATAT is what all, all terrain, all, I don't know. What, what does ATAT stand for? You know, all terrain something. Anyway, oh one one is slightly <laughs> sorry. One is slightly small. I didn't mean to put you on the spot. One is slightly smaller. The ATST is slightly smaller, and usually a scout thing. You do see it on Hoth and on Endor, but it's not the big Imperial Walker ATAT. So just it's just like in the, case you were. It's like yeah, a chicken robot. Sure, yeah. Giant chicken <laughs> robot. That's what you got. Picture. There you go. All right. Anything uh, which else? I, I yeah. think you know. Look, the ATAT is uh, the ADAT. As the as we called it back in my generation was yeah, the uh, me too. Um, it, it had an element of impracticality to it, uh, but it was it was like a locomotive on stilts. I think it was how it was literally described in the Empire Strikes Back script. And uh, there's a cool cool factor to it, just like a giant thing marching toward you and a bunch of giant things marching toward you. The ATST I think is interesting and 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 a cool looking design. I always found its little legs, like just as a toy, it was so hard to keep upright <laughs> that I was always like, as a, as an, as a machine of war, this thing, you know, steps on a Lego and it goes down. Like what? <laughs> How practical is this as a, as a, as a, as a device? Well, and we saw it. It can't and handle puddles. It can't know, handle so. a puddle. It slips right into the ditch. And, yeah. uh, you know, uh, I just think. It is not an all-terrain vehicle. It is like for walking down sidewalks. <laughs> but uh, but as as with many things in Star Wars, it, it's the it, it is better to look good than to feel good. It looks it, it looks good. It's cool looking design. I love the red eyes as it was coming yeah. through the woods. Like, oh yeah, it was yeah. like a there was a kind of a monster movie vibe to it. Uh, the red eyes glowing between the trees had a kind of Wendigo feel, and uh, I dug that. Yeah, so so the at at is all terrain armored transport, and this is like an all terrain scout something. It's just supposed to like you know scout things out, and then the the at at which is bigger is full of stormtroopers ready to you know decimate you. And but Nutella, yeah, I mean, I, lots of Nutella on board. They have. To <laughs> I think I think the uh, <laughs> I think I think the problem with the AT, the at at and the ATSD is that like once you see. Luke defeated on, once you see them defeated on Hoth by essentially tripping it, then you're just sort of like, well, I mean, <laughs> that's how you beat that. I mean, I don't know. Anyway. Wrap um, a cable. That's what I mean. If you could defeat a, a tank by just wrapping a, a cable around its legs. Like, okay. It's a structural design issue there. Um, all right. Well, I think, I think that's, that's it. Is there anything else we want to say about Sanctuary this episode? The baby Yodinus was over the top and wonderful. <laughs> I, I love that they played up uh, the mischief making of this little imp and uh, that he's out there slurping his soup and just his sheer sweetness and goodness uh, causes two hard-bitten warriors from uh, to, to stop trying to murder each other. I, I just thought that was very funny and uh, I love this little creature. You get a little bit of nuance from him because he's you know, I think what one of the charms of Baby Yoda is that he's living his best. Like he's, <laughs> he wants to play with the knob. He takes the knob off. He's, he, he just kind of does it. He's just happy. And he, we saw the first little moment of, uh, of, uh, of anxiety from Baby Yoda when he's trying to eat a living frog and the other kids in the village are like, ooh, gross. And he gets a little like, oh, and he takes the frog out and lets the frog go. And I was like, how dare you shame Baby Yoda? He's doing what comes naturally here, man. 
just trying to eat a frog and they made him feel bad about it. And I mean, I have a question. Do you think baby Yoda is going to go vegetarian after this? I don't know. Um, or, or bone broth only. Who knows? Well, bo- that would not vegan. be ve- vegetarian, yeah, would it? Certainly not. Unless you're eating, not. you know, plant bones. <laughs> Maybe there's, I think, uh, well, look, Yoda lived in the swamp. Uh, actual Yoda. So, you know, he's eating bugs and I'm sure crickets, whatever, whatever he could get his hands on. <laughs> um, not, not that he doesn't enjoy the finer things. He was going through Luke's backpack to find, uh, you know, whatever he could, a fruit cup, maybe. <laughs> a fruit cup, some astronaut, some astronaut ice cream. Yeah. Um, <laughs> what do you got here? Um, yeah, I will say, I think the Mandalorian needs to invest in another, like, hover crib. Because I didn't really buy that Baby Yoda could like keep up with him as he walked uh, into town with those little legs. So he he either needs like a baby Bjorn or uh, like another hover crib for that for yeah. that baby, you know. So um, I'm sure we can find him one. Um, all right, so let us go now to our interview with the great Gina Carano. This was done um, at the Mandalorian Junket a couple weeks ago. Anthony and I were trading a microphone back and forth, so you might hear a little cord rubbing as we sort of like hand the mic off, but uh, mostly you'll just hear Gina Carano's lovely voice. So please enjoy this interview with Gina Carano. Hey, I'm Brian Stelter, host of Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. This week, with the help of Dan Adler and Olivia Nuzzi, we're going inside the media circus swirling around Donald Trump's criminal trial. People want coverage of Donald Trump. There are sort of shades of 2015, 2016. I found it to be a a total break from the reaction to a lot of Trump coverage in the last two years. Join me, Brian Stelter, on Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. Listen wherever you get podcasts. All right, Gina, I think the first thing I want to ask you about is something we discussed uh, a little bit before uh, when the first footage of this came out at Star Wars Celebration. And you told me what I thought was a really cool and moving story about getting cast in the part of Cara Dune and um, that you thought when you were brought in you were going to maybe be cast as an alien or anything because you're tough. I thought I was going to be like the female Chewbacca. <laughs> I was ready to put on like the fur outfit and be the female you know, version of that. That's what I thought. <laughs> And, and what were you surprised to find? I was surprised to find that I was one of one of the few people that you were actually going to see her face, and 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 a lot of scenes. Sometimes the only face, which is, um, yeah, that's. I mean, that's pretty incredible. <laughs> what was it like acting with people who are, you know, they're either masked or they're playing an alien creature or you know covered up in some way when you are the only face in a scene you know it's for me i i love it even like the language was so different in this but once you it makes you try that much harder to understand what's going on in the scene so for me i feel like it helped um but like when i meet people and this is something that a lot of close people told me like i don't naturally see what um somebody's physical appearance is i i instantly kind of feel who a person is and um and so that's just always been a natural. Um, I think that's a, a gift because I don't, I don't take what you you heard about someone or their reputation or whatever front they're trying to put on. I really feel like I I can see a person for who they really are, and so that wasn't hard for me at all. Um, I felt like with uh, you know Pedro being under the mask, like I could tell, I could tell with his energy, and I could tell when he was upset, I could tell when he was smiling. And he won't fuss up to that, but I'd be like, are you laughing right now? And he was cracking up or, you know, <laughs> or like, you're smiling at me right now. And he, he would be completely like, you wouldn't be able to tell. And I'm like, I know you're, you're smiling at me. Right now. And he would take it off. And be like, How do you know that? <laughs> I'm like, I just know, like, I know what's going on over there. So I actually really loved working with um, people who were faceless. <laughs> Gina, it sounds like you're admitting to us that you have the force. Yeah. That you use the force. <laughs> no. <laughs> Oh, okay, that was not okay. That wasn't on purpose. No, I don't know. That's just how I live my life. I think that my my mom brought me up that way. You know, it was kind of like, you know, um, don't judge people. Kind of let people show you who they are and give people an opportunity. And believe me, it's it's gotten me in a lot of trouble because <laughs> like I feel like I feel like uh, people instantly feel like comfortable. So I feel like you know, but. 
I really like that. That's one thing I really am proud of in my life is I, I don't like judge on the outside. Well, since you are allowed to speak specifically <laughs> by your episode, uh, can you tell us sort of specifically then, uh, what was your favorite part about your, your introductory episode? Well, my favorite, um, is my favorite part was reading the script and realizing somebody wrote this with me in mind. Somebody wrote this character and wanted to give this character to me. And so John Farver, I don't think he auditioned anybody else for Cara Dune. I think he had me specifically in mind. He clicked on the internet and he was like, okay, this is our girl. <laughs> this is our Cara Dune. And I find some of the most incredible jobs I've had have come through, you know, come to me that way. And this just happened to be a character where when you're reader, reading her on script, I, I just kind of like, I fell in love with her, you know? I was like, are you kidding me? This diamond this like cool character who is strong and a loner and um you know trying to work her way out like through this life i have so much in common with her and then i can also <laughs> i can also add and i can do anything i want with her so it's um so for this and then i also had a director so bryce dallas howard was my first director and she um she cares so much about the character development and the char- the character story and that the actors, you know, if we felt good after a scene, you know, she could tell, okay, you didn't feel good about that. Let's try it again. What would you do? You know, and she really talked to, talked to me on an actor level, and I respect her so much. So it was, um, and I just think Cardin's cool, man. Like, she's a cool character, and she's a loner, and she's something that so many, so many men and women out there can, and, you know, and kids hopefully can kind of look at her and draw some strength from and relate to is there a thing that Bryce said to you? I've talked to Bryce before about she's so interested in the theme of, I don't know, f- female anger in, in sort of just exploring righteous female anger and the depths of that. Is that something that you guys talked about? Is that something you explored in your episode? Um, I know she really found it fascinating uh, after I'd get done with, like, you know, uh, an aggressive scene. She she laughed and she was like, "Whoa, Cardoon has anger issues," <laughs> you know. And she was really fascinated. You know, she she plays certain like she plays certain types of you know characters on film, and she looks at my character and it's probably the complete opposite of sometimes the character she gets to play. And so she told me in a way it was nice for her to explore. You know, she's like, "I get to live through you. I get to live through Cara, and I get to live and you know see what I would want to do." And actually, John Farrow said the same thing. He was like, "You're the character that I've always wanted to play. You're the character that's like, you know, raising the stakes and raising hell and like, what the hell, you know?" Like he just loved. He loves being the the badass, and so I get to be that for people. <laughs> What's the moment people are going to be most debating and arguing in this episode? What did you know was going to be, this is going to be the surprise or the twist that, that catches people off guard? In this episode, and specifically mm-hmm. in this episode, um, something that catches people off guard. I mean, I know from the first episode, there's that wonderful surprise at the end. Mm-hmm. And that's like, that's the introduction of that character is something that I feel like can stand on its own. Um like that was such a powerful thing that was added to the story and i'm that was our precious <laughs> you know <laughs> our precious is this being that um we all end up you know taking care of in some way and i think that that is that raises that just raises the emotional level and like the the stakes you know so um the mandalorian and, and that being's um relationship is really cool to watch for this episode it's really like the introductory of a kind of more human um there's more humans in this like it's you know in the in the previous episodes there weren't as many humans in this episode there's a ton there's kids there's you know men and women trying to survive on this planet and there's you know um my character just trying to hide out on this planet um and she thinks the mandalorian's there you know to pick her up because um, she thinks that she's, you know, in trouble with him and he's going to take her in. And um, so I think this is a very much different episode than we've seen from the, the previous three episodes because there's a, that human elef- element. And I think that's kind of a different flavor. And it's cool that Bryce did it, uh, did this episode because she is so in touch with, like, emotions. So I think this is a little bit more on the emotional side. It, it kind of veers off into this planet. It's a little bit more of a 
a gentle kind of emotional. There's more of like a interaction between the Mandalorian and this other character. So I think it's um I don't know. I think it, it it's just like a nice. I think they call this episode what's it called? Sanctuary. So it feels like that. It's like here's like this this planet that's um, a sanctuary for a second. You know, yeah. a, a breath into a sanctuary. Yeah. Since you're such an amazing kick-ass fighter, um, mm-hmm. <laughs> what is it like for you to know so much about fighting? And I know you've you've worked in film before, but I don't know fighting with Pedro. Uh, did you give many tips? Like, what was that like fighting side by side? It was incredible. I mean, Pedro. You know, he said something earlier um, to me. He said, "You know, I I play my characters how I feel. Sometimes, like I don't know how to beat." You know, in all of his other characters, Narcos, Game of Thrones, I don't know how to beat that big guy. And I'm going to let the audience know I don't know how to beat him or, like, I'm going to let them feel me mm-hmm. on that. So he's very um, he's very vulnerable in a beautiful way. And so when then he puts on this Mandalorian costume, you can kind of feel a little bit of that vulnerability, which I think is such a great, um, you know, contrast. And it just makes him that much more mysterious and that much more... Like, you want to know, who is this guy underneath here? You can feel his personality. You want to know more about him. Like, he's so sexy, you know? Like, such a... I'm a big fan of the mystery. I'm a big fan of the guy in the corner or the, you know, the man or woman in the corner. And they're not saying very much, but somehow everybody knows that they're there. Mm -hmm. Like, that's the Mandalorian to me. Like, he doesn't want the attention. He just gets it, you know? And he's like, shoot, I didn't mean to draw so many eyeballs, but now that I have him, and how did I end up here? And I feel like that's something that so many of us can, like, relate to. We might not be on the stage, and everybody's looking at, like, you know, us, but, you know, some people are. So, um, it was really cool. I love uh, the fight scenes. Um, I just have to, I have such a level of, um, (laughs) I always want to do better. And so, I always want to figure out how, in this limited amount of time, how do we make this different than what I've done before? How do we um, tell a good story with this fight scene? How do I, you know, change it up from the previous ones that I've done so that people don't get bored and be like, oh, okay, and, like, I want people to focus in on, like, okay, she knows how to make this look real, and she's keeping it all authentic every single time she does it, you know? I think that we did that on this, so... You'll see me post stuff on Instagram and Twitter, and I'm like I only post the stuff that I'm ultimately proud of, <laughs> you know. Yeah. So I, um, which I have, I've had all types of jobs, you know. Not every job I've been super proud of, but um, this job I think I'll be posting a lot on. <laughs> what do you feel is the, the coolest thing we learn about Cara Dune? I know she's a, a shock trooper, which is a term I think most people would associate with the Empire, but yeah. she was with the Rebels. Yes, yeah. Why did she fight, and what became of her after? the uh after the events we saw in like the original trilogy um i think uh so she was a rebel shock trooper um and we cross-referenced that with dave floney and you know that was like they explained to me and i can't after this episode i can't really tell you as much because i think uh in the later episodes there's more to come Mm -hmm. come. but i think what you um i think you get her vibe i think you get okay she's like a no-nonsense no-nonsense woman that is still a woman you know she's a survivor she doesn't want to get attached but you know she's she likes the adrenaline and she likes to be involved and she likes to survive she was a good guy she was one of the good guys but she um did did the experiences of being a shock trooper push her maybe to a darker place yeah well there's a reason why i mean you know she's got a bounty on her head right why does she have a bounty on her head because she left and she's on her own now and so she's in trouble (laughs) she's obviously always in trouble i feel like she's always in trouble um so they're coming i mean she thinks that he's there to pick her up you know and she's hiding on a planet so i think that all of that you know she i you know i feel like she loved war and after the war was done you know she doesn't want to just be a you know, a babysitter. She wants to be, you know, and and she's probably thinking a lot of you know what happened during war and do you agree with what happened during war and all this stuff. You know, so she's she's thinking about a lot. I think she's a she's a soldier who's been through a lot in life and has a you know incredible backstory. So, yeah. My my last question for you is, um, 
what was the moment from start to finish from the moment you get the call from John to whatever uh, that you most look around and you're like oh my god I'm I'm in a Star War I'm in a Star War <laughs> it was definitely um, my first day on set uh, Dave and John were there and you show up to this incredible set where you're just like whoa like this is this is like nothing I've ever seen before and I think when you watch the behind the scenes you're gonna be like wow like that is that's, it's gonna basically what they did it's gonna take filming movies like this to the next level I mean we had everybody visit set from the top of the like the best directors in town and they all wanted to come see what we were doing on set and how we were filming so I mean, everyone came. <laughs> and I would always be like, so-and-so's on set. And I'm like, are you serious right now? That's crazy. Like, everybody wanted to check out what John was doing. Um, and he would proudly take everybody into the set and show them this new thing. Um, so I think my first, I think my my realization, well, it hit me hard when he told me, you wanna, you're you going to be in Star Wars. Of course, that first day, I didn't even know that's why I was meeting John. He was like, okay, you're going to be in Star Wars. And I was like, what? That's why I'm here. I only get—I not only get to meet John Favreau. I get to meet—I I mean, I get to be in Star Wars now. This is, is insane. But then when I put on that the costume, and I went to set, and then they actually had me hop up on a blurg. <laughs> that was my first day on set, and I'm sitting on this mechanical blurg, <laughs> and I'm like looking up online. I'm like, what blurg? <laughs> like, you know, I'm like, what is this called? Mm-hmm. And um, that was surreal. That was just a surreal. Was it moment. fairly complete, or was it was? It- yeah, it was completely complete, and it was huge. And we had to like take get a ladder and get up on there. So the last thing I'll ask you is: uh, uh, now that the show's out, people, it, it's freeze frame time. Uh, people are going to be studying the episode. What can you tell us about your costume? How much input did you get into how it looked, and what were you happy about? What was difficult, but also, what, are there any cool little details about it that reveal something? I mean, the whole costume for me um, it was just so my first fitting. I went in and, and like I tried. They like made a mold of my body, and I was like, oh, that's not fun. <laughs> Necessarily not the funnest. And then um, they got Bryce Dallas Howard involved, and she was like, okay, okay. Like, how do you put, like, this football, basically a football under padding on a, a busty, curvy female and not have her be, like, busty and, or, like, not, yeah, not have me blocky. be, like, blocky, right? That, that we did not want blocky. And so what she did specifically with the amazing costume designer is we started building out, like, okay, the shoulders and then, like, the waist and then the belts. And, and then Dave Filoni came in and he was like, okay, let's put some of this on and John would come in and he was like I love that let's you know but let's make her more badass and let's give her this and this is her like blaster what? like, what like a things? blaster mm-hmm. the blaster I saw I just felt like it was very Han Solo like and I was like that is cool <laughs> like that is a very Han Solo blaster um, and you know they were so attentive and into listening you know I didn't want to be a block I didn't want to just be this like <laughs> big buff you know refrigerator walking refrigerator, around you know i wanted to still feel like myself but you know of course you know i would have worn i would have worn that chewbacca costume you know like i was willing to wear anything <laughs> but then like the amount of energy and then i wanted to look like a mac like i you know take down a buffalo <laughs> but i also wanted to feel attractive in it and they found the most incredible uh, balance of that that i feel you know hopefully little girls and and or boys can put on for you know Halloween, and they're going to be like, "Hey, we're onto something here." Yeah. So I mean, and and then you know the the she's sturdy. She's been through war, so that costume and or that that uh, armor and everything, you know, like it's worn. <laughs> it's like you know, it's hers. And, it's the remnants of her yeah, shark trooper. Yeah, of her shark. Yeah, and I, you know, she doesn't want to take that off. That's a part of her. Thank, Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Well, that is it for us this week. We will be back with episode five, chapter five of The Mandalorian next time. Anthony, until then, where can people find you in all of your amazing Mandalorian slash Star Wars coverage? Uh, you can find me on VanityFair.com and on Twitter at Bresnikan. And uh, yeah, check out next week. Uh, we've got some J.J. Abrams goodness for you. Excellent. And you can find me uh, at Jarothis. You can also find me on VF.com. And uh, we will see you right back here 
next week, hopefully with more of my voice uh, intact. Hi, I'm Jeremy Larson, the Reviews Director of Pitchfork, and this podcast is supported by Pitchfork Music Festival. Pitchfork Music Festival will take place July 19th through the 21st at Union Park in Chicago, Illinois. This year's lineup features Jamie XX, Alanis Morissette, Black Pumas, Carly Rae Jepsen, Brittany Howard, Jay Paul, Muna, Jesse Ware, 100 Gex, and many more. The festival also features diverse vendors as well as specialty record, poster, and craft fairs and works to support local businesses while promoting the Chicago arts and food communities as a whole. For more information on tickets and lineup, visit pitchforkmusicfestival.com.